Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. So, good afternoon and welcome to Chapel FM Arts Centre. Uh, if you've not been before, uh, even more of a welcome. And um, some of us have been to Blowdown, the theatre production we've just seen. And I think we should give Gary Lyons here another round of applause. <laughs> for the, uh, for the play. Mm. Um, we're here for about 45 minutes to talk about well, the whole genre, really, of making art from what people say. Um, and we've got three exponents of that here. Uh, obviously, Gary, um, he's got a long history of this kind of theatre, but also other kinds of theatre, too. We've got Mary Cooper, who's, who she will introduce herself in a minute and talk about the kind of work she does, but she's done a lot of work in this field. And we also have Tony Macaluso, his... He's director of Chapel FM Arts Centre, but also was curator of the Studs Turkle Archive in Chicago. So masses of experience of oral history and doing stuff with words, other people's words, and making stuff from that. Um, so yeah, and we, uh, we're going to just have a chat for the first 20, 25 minutes amongst us in terms of uh, yeah what the challenges are of writing in this genre, but also what the opportunities are as well. Some of the pitfalls and some of the fantastic things that, that come from that too. And then after that, the floor is open really for, for you as an audience to ask these lovely people some questions. And it might be asking Gary about Blowdown or it might be asking Mary or Tony about their work or any of the things we've been talking about. So first of all, um, yeah, let, let's um, let them introduce themselves. So Tony, if you'd just like to say a few words about yourself and about your sort of past in oral history. Yes, so as Peter said, I'm currently director of Chapel FM, but before that, uh, in Chicago, where I'm from, moved here four years ago, uh, one of the things, I worked at a radio station, an arts, a very odd arts radio station that had an archive of an oral historian and radio host named Studs Terkel, who, at least in the United States and many places in the world, is, is one of the, the better known proponents of, of oral history, both in terms of writing books about them, but also in terms of gathering radio programs. And so, yeah, I spent about seven years uh, helping the process along, leading the process of taking about 5,400 uh, interviews going back from the 1950s up until the late 1990s with, with people like Simone de Beauvoir and Martin Luther King and Fellini, Bertrand Russell, but also taxi drivers and, you know, cleaning people and, and Chicago school teachers but in particular, not only making them available, but trying to ask questions about what would it mean to, to very, very actively encourage creative reuse of those things. So I'll get more into detail about some of those examples a bit later. Thank you, Tony. We'll come to Gary in a minute. Mary, what about you? Uh, well, I write for stage, radio, and screen, and almost all of my work has been to commission. And for all of those commissions, I work from research. And some of that research on all of my projects will be interviews, will be oral history of some kind or other. And I've used that oral history in lots of different ways from uh, the verbatim form that, that, that uh, Gary's used with Blowdown and in lots of different ways. Um, but uh, I can talk about that more later. Great. And so, Gary, yeah, if you'd like to talk about your writing history in the, in the sense that it might what led to this but also maybe carry on to talk about blowdown and how it came to be yeah um, so I uh, I was living in Yorkshire for pretty much all my adult life from coming up here to be a student at York University most of the, that time I was living in Leeds and so my career has coincided with uh, with being in Yorkshire and I've uh, I, uh, I started doing this kind of work um, right at the beginning of my career in the 80s, um, uh, largely in Bradford with a, a small theatre company at that time called Major Road, um, developing plays uh, from the testimony of people whom I met 
Um, the, the very first of those projects was called Echoes from the Valley, which was uh, researched among elderly textile workers in the Air Valley, stretching from Bradford through Bingley to Keithley. Uh, and, um, uh, and that was very much a, a piece that swept uh, across local history from the 1930s to uh, the then present day. Um, and I did a number of other projects at that time and then sort of went off to do other kinds of work in theatre and television uh, and left that kind of work behind until very recently. Um, uh, and I suppose we're talking about going back about five or six years. And um, just prior to that, I'd got involved in, in writing very large-scale productions, musicals for big theatres. I got involved in trying to set up a very large-scale children's animation project for the BBC, which was an American co-production. Uh, and for one reason or another, those kinds of projects started not to materialise. I was spending a lot of time working on these big projects that didn't come to anything in the end in terms of production. And, um, uh, and I began to feel that... I began to feel frustration as a writer um, because, obviously, you want your work out there to the public. Uh, and I, I started to think, well, maybe I should go back to my earliest roots as a writer and start to re-explore the idea of, of oral history, as, as Mary calls it, or verbatim theatre, um, as a way of tapping directly into the experiences of people living and working today and tapping into their memories and their emotions and feelings and dreams and hopes and aspirations and disappointments um, uh, as a way of getting away from, I suppose, the kind of very industrial theatre and filmmaking process that I'd been involved with uh, up until that point. And something else happened. I, I, got, I, I got a commission to uh, work on a piece about the closure of uh, Hatfield Main Colliery, which is just north of Doncaster. Uh, and I was doing that project for Cast in Doncaster, the theatre there. Uh, and uh, I just started on that project and the Brexit referendum happened. Uh, and the arguments about Brexit informed that show, it informed what people were saying to me. And um, I realised, it was coincidence in a way, fortuitously, but I realised that there was a whole swathe of people in the North and Midlands who lived in towns and small cities that um, had been ignored by the mainstream media. And that had been in part the reason for the way that the referendum went, in my view. Uh, and I thought that this was not just... Uh, that, that going back to this kind of work wasn't just something that was... Um, kind of important for my own personal career, but actually it, it was very timely in that um, uh, that I, would I realised I was speaking to people whose voices had been ignored and not heard for several decades in this country. Uh, and that kind of enthused me even more for, to go back to that kind of grassroots work um, as a way of really using myself and my, the, the, uh, my, my skills as best as I can to act as a conduit for what these people who had felt forgotten had to say and why they felt so alienated and dislocated from mainstream society. And that's, that's how I started on this, this kind of renewed path of work and that's sustained me for the last five or six years really. Fantastic, thank you, Gary. Well, let's let's dig straight into this the, the kind of methodology of how you how you set about doing this kind of work and writing something, writing a play from this mass of, of material, really that you've gathered. You you was about twenty twenty five hours of, of twenty five hours on this project. Yeah, yeah that's mm. a lot. But to condense that, mm. what do you select? You know, what is truthful? What does truth mean in hmm. this context? Um, and yeah, but so let, let's first of all, I'd like to go to Mary. Yeah, I mean, can you talk a little about your kind of experience in this field, maybe with a particular project that you have in mind that could illustrate some of the challenges and pitfalls? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the project I did working with um, the Chinese communities in the north of England with um, 
uh, a Chinese linguist and writer, um, Mimi Webster. And uh, partly because it's a nice contrast with Gary's um, piece. And um, I think the, uh, for me, the, the challenges were manifold because um, I was often speaking to people whose language I didn't speak. Uh, Mimi uh, spoke three um, Chinese languages, but there, were, there are others. Uh, and so sometimes I was working with an interpreter. And um, I, I think the, that took a lot of getting used to. Um, but I think for me, what was great was that it wasn't just um, a, a language interpretation, it was a cultural interpretation uh, that I was gaining from, um, from working with Mimi and from working with an interpreter. So that, that was immensely challenging, but it was also really rewarding because um, I learned so much about a very hidden community and I ultimately felt enabled that community to become visible. We did a theatre show that toured twice nationally and we, we performed in Chinese restaurants and it, the performance involved a meal. So we started with soup, we then had the show and then we had a meal and the audience ate the meal with the people who happened to be sitting next to them round round tables. So the audience were able to be to have a, um, a social experience as well as a theatrical experience. Um, and it was a trilingual play, um, so we incorporated Cantonese and Mandarin. And um, yeah, I mean, it, we, it turned out um, to be, I think, a very um, moving and, and powerful piece. Can I ask you, Mary, I mean, th there was an incident, I mean, an, uh, an obvious sort of focal point, Gary, for you in the sense that the, the power station is coming down. That is the kind of the, the kind of centre, the axis of sort of gravity in a way that everything coalesces in your play. For you, Mary, what was the focus with the Chinese play? Was there some similar, or was it? Well, there is there is a similar experience, and that is the experience of moving from one place that you have called home to another place that becomes home. Um, and um, so there wasn't an event as such, but there was a thematic strand and uh, an emotional journey that joined the stories. And um, I mean, I tried to cover a hundred years of Chinese history. Uh, so we had three, three character stories, um, which uh, covered the, if you like, the three waves of Chinese migration up to the 21st century from uh, the end of empire. So from the end of, of um, the em Chinese emperor to the present day, in two hours, um, <laughs> uh, th but through three stories that were interwoven, and the stories were based on interviews, but not entirely verbatim. So while there wasn't a single event, there was a un unifying experience. Can I ask you both, you've got, I mean, we'll come yeah. on to you, Tony, in a minute, but you've got all this material, you've, you've recorded all these, you've had masses of interviews with, with people from Chinese backgrounds all over Leeds and West Yorkshire. You've interviewed masses of people in Nottingham. Where do you start? How do you, how do you begin to select what goes into that play, Gary? Um, I like to go into these kinds of projects with as blank a page as I possibly can have. So when I started interviewing people in Nottingham Ferrybridge, which uh, I should point out was on Zoom because we were in the middle of pandemic. So that was a novelty for me. I'd never worked on, on Zoom before. Um, uh, I, I knew next to nothing about Nottingham Ferry Ridge other than that there was a power station there and it had been closed and was in the process of being demolished. That's it. Um, uh, these days I like to work with somebody who knows the area well. Uh, uh, and in this case, it was a community artist who'd done a lot of work in, in that area. Uh, and uh, I employed her as a researcher to find me good storytellers. That was it. Here's, here, here's the nature of the project. But find me good storytellers who can tell me good stories about Nottingham Ferrybridge. Because in the end, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't particularly interested in the demolition of a power station. That was a, a matter of seconds. I was interested in what the community felt about that and what, a, what they felt more generally about themselves at this moment in time. Um, uh, and then, from that point on, I let the testimony of the people whom I'd been lined up with guide me. Um, and in the case of Blowdown, 
the thing that most struck me very forcibly with the first few interviews was everybody was incredibly negative <laughs> about about where they lived, mm. and um, uh, and I and, and everybody talked about demolition and demolition of the particularly the services mm. in the area, um, and there was a moment, uh, uh, you know, some way into the research where I, I, I began, well, how can I make a play out of this? I, this is going to feel so kind of downbeat and miserable, you know, nobody's going to want to watch it. Um, I mean, even though there was humour in a lot of the testimony, it was kind of hard to kind of draw it out. And then I met the Scottish women, <laughs> and the whole thing transformed really because their their humour and the life in their voices and the, the experiences they had to tell um, m made me realise there was a whole different aspect to this story. And I, you know. I, and, and I had no idea before I started on the research that there was a large Scottish community in Nottingham, and I don't think many people in Leeds and Wakefield know that either. Um, but they have a, 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 a they've played a huge part in the recent history of the places as the play shows. Thank you, Gary. D Mary, was there a similar moment with you where you would obviously I know you relied on helpers to people in the Chinese community to help you for avenues into research and finding people but was there a moment when things when suddenly things caught light um i think um for me i i do I, I spread a very wide net and i look for patterns and then there's usually a moment where um a phrase will um will uh, crystallize a pattern that i've been observing and um in the case of the chinese play there was a moment when i realized that most of the stories I was hearing were about being separated from the mother. Um, and story after story was, I had to leave my mother, or I, my mother told me to go, or I wish I could find my mother. And, um, you know, the obvious resonance of motherland and mother um, was very striking. Um, but it, that was also the emotional heart of the play. And I, I didn't expect to find that at all. That just kept coming up. And, uh, well, there was one, one woman who, very elderly, who told me that she'd searched for her mother for um, something like 15 years, eventually found her, because they'd been separated while fleeing. And um, she said, we slept in the same bed for two weeks. And um, that really hit home, and I thought, that's, that's what this is about. This is about being wanting that sort of intimacy and familiarity to be returned to one's life. Thank you, Mary. So, Tony, I mean, you've, it, it, we're talking really about oral testament, if you like, being, and, and I, I, I just wanted to say, from what both Gary and Mary said, it seems like listening is the crucial thing, just being open to anything, and then seeing what patterns, and if there's anything as a writer that strikes you, a metaphor, a consistency and pattern, but, and this is about theatre. Tony, uh, in terms of your your history, your experience of turning words, other people's words, into art. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Well, in some ways, my experience is, I suppose, almost the, the exact opposite approach to, to similar territory as Mary and Gary's, because certainly with the Studs Turco work, and I'm also involved with the Charles Parker archive, if people know the radio ballads hmm. that Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger and, and Charles Parker made in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, but starting with an existing batch of audio and then basically waving a flag to the wider world and saying, come, ha come at this, what do you want to do with this? Whether it's writers, theater makers, but also musicians, museum curators, teachers, journalists, really anybody who might have an idea. And I guess two comments on that. One is, it might be people who, who don't work in this field might, might not be aware that accessing archival audio is, is not always easy for a number of reasons. One, it can be still hard to find, for, even though we live in a digital world and there's a lot of stuff out there, but also to get the rights to do it. It can be expensive, complicated. There's not a lot of information to navigate it. Um, and so whether you're looking at the BBC or the Library of Congress in the United States or the British Library, to be able to use that stuff isn't always easy. And so what we really tried to do was seed it and go, go out to as many artists or organizations as possible. And just I'll give one example just, just to give a sense. I'll pick a non-theater example just because even though we're talking about theater projects to give a sense of some of the other possibilities. So for me with the Studs Turkle Archive, and there were over the course of the first two or three years after the archive became available, 
um, and was, had transcripts and was digitized and searchable. Um, there were about 35 examples of people using it for different things, from very, very local, you know, embedded in a school, to things that are qu quite national or international. Um, and one that really struck me, and I'll, I'll end with a, a, a phrase that might be useful in the conversation. Um, we worked with a, a music group called the Kronos Quartet, which is a fairly well-known uh, string quartet that's been around since the 1980s that has a penchant for commissioning new work. And they had actually been interviewed by Studs Terkel when they were just starting off, so they knew him and his work, and they said, we'd love to commission a piece that uses some oral history material along with us playing as a classical string quartet. And so they settled on an interview with Mahalia Jackson, who people don't know, she was a gospel singer, close friend of Martin Luther King, but also a very close friend of Studs Terkel, and hired a composer, Stacy Garup, uh, as part of a festival at Carnegie Hall in New York, um, created a 25-minute piece using Mahalia Jackson's voice, this great gospel singer who, who had died in the 1970s, and Studs Terkel and the quartet playing uh, but really making phrasing of the instruments, wrapping around the voices and responding and echoing the voices, um, and to be able to you know, <coughs> go and sit in the audience at Carnegie Hall and watch the Kronos Quartet bring Studs Terkel and Mahalia <coughs> Jackson, you know, both long dead, both getting their, uh, Mahalia might have performed at Carnegie Hall, but it was Studs Terkel's Carnegie Hall debut from <laughs> Beyond the Grave. Um, but one, one idea that Studs Terkel in particular talked a lot about in his oral history and radio work was a phrase that he, I guess, concocted called the feeling tone, which is this idea that you can look at the literal words that someone says, maybe if you transcribe them on the page, and they can be really useful and informative, but then there's also all the stuff that's in somebody's voice that doesn't make it into a literal transcription. So the way they might pause or sigh or laugh or the sense of anger or hesitation or indignation in someone's voice, all that stuff and what that can tell you about their experience that sometimes you would lose if you were just reading those words on the page. Um, and I've always found that a really interesting, fertile thing. And certainly with Kronos Quartet, they were playing with the feeling tones, right? This certain kind of pause that maybe the cello or the viola might then carry on and echo in some ways. And so certainly interested in Mary and Gary and your experience of, you know, where you had a little interview and then there's an actor now embodying that voice obviously bringing a whole different sense of interpretation to that feeling tone side of things. Yes, Gary, would you, I mean, I noticed that it was, you know, lovely that you used half phrases and ums and hesitations. And was the actor directed in a way to replicate the, the, the speech, that feeling tone of the tape? Yeah, um, in the past on these kinds of projects um, we've usually made an opportunity for the actors to talk to the original interviewees. For one reason or other <coughs> that didn't happen on Blowdown. I'm not quite sure why, um, but anyway it didn't. Um, but nevertheless, yes, um, the th there's a real importance to all of those little quirky things that happen in conversational speech that don't often or don't always find their way into more formal, formally written drama. Um, it's, it's part of the authenticity of it, it's part of capturing the emotion and the colour of the language through which character, I believe, emerges. Um, and uh, although I do think with this kind of work uh, in live theatre, you get this really interesting amalgam between the, the original interviewee's words and what the actor themselves bring to it, so that it's not a kind of a literal replication of the original interview, at, at least in my work. Um, um, there are other forms of uh, verbatim theatre where the original interview, interview is used uh, much more directly, um, there's a technique called direct delivery in which actors wear an earpiece and are listening to the original interview as they perform uh, as a way of trying to capture, uh, almost photographically, if that's not a, a mixed metaphor, what was actually said on the audio file. Um, that I, I, do, I, don't, um, uh, I don't use that technique myself because there's something much more kind of musical about my work. <laughs> um, um, uh, and uh, I like the, to have the freedom to be able to 
edit the transcript material much more liberally than, than would be possible with that kind of work. Well, that's an interesting one. That, that, that's a, a really interesting point, actually. And I was thinking when you were talking about the Kronos Quartet, mm. you know, that the, the words that they used were very carefully chosen. But there might have been in that con they might have meant something in that context that was not meant by the speaker. Um, and as we know, I mean, in just this week, you know, there's Matt Hancock saying that his words have been taken out of context and a story has been spun from those words that isn't the story that, of the reality. I mean, in terms of, and as writers, you have that freedom to edit somebody's words, take some a sentence, put it with another sentence, and tell your own story. What, what is truth in this context, Mary? <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm, what I would say that is that stories are, I tell in my dramas are truthful, but not true of any one person. So um, I would always be working with composites, and um, that, I think, gives, gives you a kind of freedom. Um, there's another question related to truth, which is that sometimes people tell you things which, when you look back, you check back at the facts, um, don't don't tally, um, and that is a whole other area of um, questioning as a writer. Is your responsibility to the person or to history? <laughs> and um, uh, you know that's something. You know that's a question all the time that that I I work around. Um, I wrote a play about um, uh, Bangladeshi women who support Bradford City Football Club, and. Um, uh, I got very different accounts from different people about what had actually happened. So, um, you know, you as a as a writer, you can you can actually incorporate both as a as a playwright. You can inc incorporate them as competing views. Um, but um, I don't know what would you say about that, Gary? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're into sort of an area that could become a whole PhD. But um, uh, I, I, I think there's a constant negotiation going on when you're working on projects like this around the question of what is actually factually true, what actually somebody said, whether you're capturing the actual uh, intention of what they meant or, or do you actually deliberately uh, replicate a mistake they may have made. Um, you know, all, all those things are, I think, are in play. And, it, uh, and, um, and up to a point, all those things are... You can justify using any of those things. You can justify changing somebody's line to accommodate the actual fact rather than the uh, the uh, mistake they made, if the context um, is appropriate. Or you can leave their mistake in. Um, there's uh, there's a couple of examples that I would point to in Blowdown. Um, it's firmly the belief of the power worker character that. Um, coal can be burned clean. Now, that obviously is environmentally contentious, but it seemed to me important in the context of this play where I was trying to capture the authentic feelings and belief of the people who'd given me that testimony that I leave that statement as it is without questioning it. Um, and I'll let the audience make up their mind about that. Um, and you'll have noticed that the, those of you who've just seen the play that the, the 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 pair of Scottish women are constantly bickering and correcting each other about the facts of their memory, and that was again something that you know is playful and fun, but also is allowing the audience to perhaps question the fact of what actually happened, as mm. opposed to what they're saying was happened. And of course, you know that brings in the whole question of memory and the importance of memory. Now. As we know, memory distorts, yeah. but it sometimes distorts for very good reasons. And it's partly a way of coming to terms with bad experiences uh, in the past that you, you you need to get over. So that when the the Scottish women constantly talk about, oh, we you know, but we ended up the best of friends. Did I entirely believe that when I was listening to them? Did I entirely believe that when I put it in the script? Not entirely, but it it it, uh, it was an accurate expression, I think, of their emotional response to their experience, and therefore, yeah. 
it was it was uh, it was important to leave it in like that. I mean, we're gonna yeah in a, few, in a minute or so. Um, you have your question ready. If you want to ask a question of Tony, but in a minute, <laughs> I just want to ask one final question um, of Tony um, and Gary and Mary. You can ask any of them a question. But I mean, finally, it's a, it's a huge responsibility that you have as a writer. You're talking, Mary, about deciding what you know what the what this composite character feels about a particular situation and putting it in a play, which is then performed to those people. I mean, presumably, people who <laughs> you've performed it in Nottingley, and those people who you who you researched the Chinese play uh, with uh, were there, and that's that's a massive thing. How do you feel about that responsibility, Mary? Um, I well, I'm very aware of it all the time, and quite often I'll carry on a process of checking back because um, they say plays are not written they're rewritten and that's absolutely true uh, so you know I might try out a scenario with various people I've interviewed and say how do you feel about that and you know get proceed step by step so it's a process of um, it's, a, it's a sort of dynamic process really very often of, of checking things out and then moving them forward um, when I've worked with people who are, von you know, absolutely vulnerable, and I know their stories uh, are... Pr I'm probably the only person who knows some of the material they've told me. Mm. I actually write it up and take it back to them, and I read it to them, and I check every word with them, um, because I do feel that great sense of responsibility. Gary? Yeah, similarly. Um, we actually cut a speech at the request of the interviewee in the performances at Nottingley Town Hall, because... His family would be there, and he was worried that his fa not so much him, but his family would be upset. Um, so yeah, that there is absolutely that kind of responsibility, um, uh, and um, uh, and you, you know you you do have to take it seriously. You, just like Mary, I'm uh, I, I'm constantly in the process of checking back with people mm. during the, uh, the the process of both writing and rehearsing a, a project. But equally, you know, when uh, there is a responsibility there, but I imagine and that when people come to you afterwards and say, that's just right, that must feel good. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, um, and, uh, you know, it, it is... Um, I, I suppose it's like a, a, a portrait painter, you know, who captures a likeness, you know. I think um, that, that, of course, is hugely rewarding. And also when other people come up and say, oh, you caught so-and-so absolutely accurately. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say that on the other side of this equation, though, that um, I would always retain the final editorial right to do what I feel fit with the material. Um, and that means not always necessarily at the first conversation um, acceding to what the interviewee might want because there might be a very good editorial reason why you want to pursue a particular line of material um, that initially might f make them feel uncomfortable. Quick you know, word on that. That is, a, that's, a, that's a constant conversation, you know. Yeah. But you presumably tell somebody why you were making that decision. Absolutely, yeah. yes. You yeah. go, go through it all with yeah. them and, and, and explain, yeah. Brief word on that, Mary, before we go to questions. Uh, yes, yes, I, I agree with Gary. But I, I think um, you hope that you can persuade them rather than um, make a kind of uh, dictatorial decision. So you, you convince them that this is the best way to represent their point of view and um, that it, it is a it's not going to have the kind of repercussions they might fear hmm. thank you very much and a round of applause for them please <laughs> so yes do come back with some questions for tony gary or mary yes sir Take it forward, like with the likes of Charles Dickens, Charles Kingsley, 
Robert Trussell, Dino Hermann-Nagel, mm. uh, and Kathy van Hoon. Is it something now you take forward to actually be delivering on just the fact that it's about artistic exploration and just to uh, appreciate the arts? Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I think that uh, the, the first thing to say is that uh, given that it's theatre, it costs money to put on. So any uh, future use of the material or allied project, if you're talking about you know, doing something professionally, oh, it's... Sorry, the message. Oh, the message. Yeah, well, I mean, I would, I would be delighted if, uh, if the, the message um, got out there in such a way as people at Wakefield Council or, um, or uh, you know, other, other people who were involved in Nottingham and Ferrybridge actually took some of the things that are said in the play to heart uh, in a way that, I mean, the, the, the place desperately needs investment. Um, but that's a kind of a political thing that's beyond my kind of pay grade to really, <laughs> to to really to really um, have direct influence upon. So maybe the, the 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 answer is we hope you know that the play has impact and will people will see mm. it and it mm. will people will talk about it. And those issues are out there. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Anybody else like to ask a question? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to repeat that question just because the gentleman might not be audible on the radio. So, what, at what point did the drums come into your your, your thinking about playing? So, this gentleman was the first interview that I conducted, and I, in the end, then ended up doing three or four interviews with him. Now, he—that's uh, not a composite character, by the way. That that character, although it may look like a composite character, is actually all one guy. Uh, and um, uh, he was the first person that my researcher put me in touch with because uh, he is a kind of self-appointed local historian, amongst other things. And, uh, he, and he thought, because of the way that the interview had been set up, that uh, I was going to be doing a local history play about Nottingley and um, I'd be interested in his vast archive of photographic memories. Uh, and he very quickly, it, it very quickly became apparent that he was this rock drummer. Uh, and obviously the story wasn't told in the chronology that it was told. That was all something that I kind of winkled out over the course of the three or four interviews. But uh, he gave me enough in the first interview for me to be able, for me to realise that there were, uh, there were two significant chunks of narrative in his story as a rock drummer that could be uh, the spine of the structure of the whole piece. Um, I know, obviously, that was that was only a, a glimmer of an idea at that point. So the the simple answer to your question was almost immediately, <laughs> um, but uh, the way in which it happened obviously was something that that had to kind of develop over the course of the three or four months I was writing the play because, uh, you know, I, I, was, I, I couldn't be sure how that was going to fit with anything else. And the drums is a kind of device on stage? Was that, was that, did you decide very early on that you would have a drum kit? Yeah, um, I, I always ki I'm always kind of thinking how can I exploit this material theatrically <laughs> um, right from the start of the, in the way that I conduct the interviews actually. And um, uh, yes, it, 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 was, it was in my mind as a possibility right from the start, yeah. Thank you. Yes. I mean, do you want me to do the mic? Do you pick up people? Can we got the mic here, so. Actually, can I just just add a point to that? Um, the the where it became really important in terms of the project as a whole was in the fact that drums are obviously a very kind of rhythmical and industrial sound, and it 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 occurred to me very early on that as a sound as a sound backdrop to a piece about a power station, it might be very powerful. 
Thank you. Yes. Hi. Yes, I was very interested in, in the comments about uh, that Mary and Gary made about the, the ethics of speaking going back to the people that you've spoken to. Um, so, but this is possibly more of a question for Tony because I'm wondering what the responsibility of writers is where those people are not around anymore or you can't access them. What is our responsibility to history? Is it to the individuals? How, how do you navigate that? How did you navigate in that in your past work? And what advice would you give to writers? Well, I'll jump in and then others can do. I thought there was something that happened in Blowdown that I thought was really interesting, which is sometimes somewhat subtle, is that the lines were created in such a way that there were moments when it was, it was there were sort of traces of them speaking to you, Gary, or doing an interview where there was a sense of addressing. It came out most clearly in the interview with over the, over the Zoom call with the, with the university person, but other times it might just be a, a word or two here or there that kept a trace of speaking to somebody else. And I think, you know, for one thing is to keep thinking of ways to frame it, to remind an audience, again, whether it's in a theater or an art museum or in a classroom, right, that there's, there's something... Um, both artificial and universal about all these, you know, st one story being told to somebody else, and there's always a sense. Um, one example that, that st again, Studs Trickle liked to use was he would sometimes do interviews and play the tape back immediately to somebody, and he described uh, a, an older African-American woman listening to her voice back on the tape and immediately saying, I never knew I thought that way before, you know, <laughs> hearing her voice back and remembering that it's not as though everyone's carrying around this one single, clear, universal life narrative in their heads all the time. We're always constantly reevaluating and, and inventing and trying to come to that conclusion. And so actually showing that process of discovery, I think, and keeping the, the, the complexity and the ambiguity in it, which you know, was very, I felt like with the actors today in Blowdown, there were moments you could really, you could see them thinking their way towards a new idea for the first time, rather than saying, I know the truth of my story, here it is. Mary, you're, you're p writing something, I believe, at the moment where you are making dead people speak. <laughs> so uh, talk, if you would address <laughs> Becky's question. Um, yes, uh, I've done quite a lot of um, writing based on historical sources, um, particularly for radio. And at the moment, I'm, I'm adapting um, a biography of Gertrude Bell. I don't know if anybody knows who Gertrude Bell is. She was an adventurer, explorer, archaeologist and um, spy, you might say. She was the first uh, woman member of the British Army's military intelligence, and she worked particularly in Mesopotamia, which is now Iraq. And I'm, I have so much material, it is mind-boggling, um, but the letters that she wrote, she wrote over a thousand, about mm, 1,500 letters that I have access to, um, and uh, some of the things she says are quite vicious about people. Um, she wasn't judicious, she wasn't correct necessarily, but as you said, Gary, it is the emotional tone of that which is very revealing. Um, so, I'm, I, yes, I am, I'm dealing with that now um, and uh, thinking about the family, you know, there is still a Bell family um, and uh, the I went to the archives recently and they said, I think you need to talk to the Bell family. <laughs> So that question of how you deal with the historical sources and um, the people who are left behind from the family is very current for me. Um, to some extent, I think when people are in the public eye and things are in the public uh, domain, there is an element of fair game about it. Um, uh, so uh, that, that would be one approach. Um, but um, I don't know. I don't know how you feel, Gary, about that. Uh, about uh, about dealing with the material from the past. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'll, yes, I mean, I think uh, I think I would feel that I had quite a lot of latitude if we were talking about somebody who was famous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but nevertheless, there would be some legal niceties that need to be negotiated yeah. um, in terms of copyright and so on and so forth. But the I but certainly you have these people are not around anymore, so you have some responsibility to them. Despite that, um, well, I also wrote <laughs> a play that involved <laughs> Edith Sitwell, and the BBC insisted that the script, the final script, was read by the current Sitwell family before they aired it. Mm -hmm. I, I, d 
I don't know what agreement they had with them. I mean, the Sitwells are, were absolutely self-publicists. They were the first kind of literary celebrities, if you like. Um, uh, but that was the BBC's attitude, that the Sitwell family still had the right to look at the script. Um, fortunately, they, they didn't find anything to complain about. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Hi. Um, Mary, I'm so happy you're writing about Gertrude Bell, who's long been one of my favourite characters from history. A hugely complex woman. You haven't set yourself an easy task there. Um, the the question I had really was building on what Tony said about when people get to listen back to the artwork that you've produced, they often reevaluate their thoughts and their um, what they were considering at the time the artwork was originally produced when they shared their interviews. Um, so, have you? any of the three of you had a chance to meet with the participants that contributed the original um, oral histories to your work after they've seen the artistic product to see whether it has changed their thinking around or, or added something new to what they thought was going on at the time that they shared the words. I was very interested in what you were saying about Nottingley and, and Brexit. You know, we've had now a few years since that vote um, do people look back and think, well, geez, I didn't really know what was going on in the country, or now I would look at the situation slightly differently. So I don't know if you've had that chance to, to have those conversations in, in the past with anyone who's been involved in your work. So, um, yeah, go for yes, it. Yes, all, all the time. Um, the work is a constant feedback loop with the participants. Um, so that with the case of blowdown during the research and development process there were two online readings to which the all of the interviewees were invited uh, and they then gave their feedback um, uh, I, I, I said that uh, in the case of blowdown uh, the participants the interviewees didn't actually contribute directly to the rehearsal process though in most of my projects they would and all of the interviewees have come to see the show. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's true to say that there's a kind of a double-edged thing going on. On the one hand, you want them to recognise the, the accuracy and truth of, of the material they've given you. And on the other hand, you want to say to them, this material that you've given me, which you thought at the time was really mundane and you thought you weren't important, it actually has been transformed into something that thousands of people are watching and enjoying. Uh, and the, um, the reality of uh, a town like Nottingley and Ferrybridge, which, think, which thinks it's forgotten, has perhaps been transformed into something which is important and is of interest to a lot more people than you realise. Any thoughts on that, Mary, before we go to the last question? Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Gary. I, I, I think um, there is people are astonished when they see their stories on stage and applauded and people in tears or laughing at, at things that feel very personal to them. And they, I think they feel in some ways um, reassured or possibly even elevated uh, by that. And um, um, recently I had um, the, the daughter of uh, one of the people I interviewed for the Chinese play um, asked me for, the, um, for the, the material that her father had given me um, because she said that um, it kind of showed the family what he had, what he'd been and she wanted to remember that and hold that for the family, that he wasn't just someone who ran a takeaway. He was a, a, you know, a wonderful person in his own right. So for her, seeing it on stage had kind of solidified that notion of her father. Um, this is less of a question and more of an observation. Um, but one of the things I really enjoy about theatre is that it feels like you're actually part of a conversation between 
like the actors and the audience are actually in conversation with one another. Um, and also the fact that actors can also make mistakes on stage and that kind of replicates the conversations that you had. Mm. Um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Um, well, it's all live, isn't it? The, the, the process of the interview is live and the performance is live. So there is a, you know, there again, there's a kind of constant layering of something going on that's in a way the very opposite of what one might think of as kind of literary drama where everything's fixed. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the, the nature of the interview transcribed verbatim lends itself obviously to that direct to the audience delivery uh, and then you you know when when there is many kind of gaps in the transcript where the interviewee is asking the interviewer a question that naturally translates to um, to a stage performance that's more like a panto than a conventional play, you know, where there are, there are these opportunities for the actor to um, to ask the audience questions or 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 demand some kind of feedback. Yeah, um, yeah. that's the beauty yeah. of it. So can I just add? Um, I always find it weird at the cinema when the film ends and everyone just goes immediately, like they stand up and they just leave, whereas we've continued the conversation even after the play yeah and it's like an ongoing dialogue yeah um, which is really I think ties into the idea of passing on the message yeah of like creating a community yeah. even while you're actually producing a play about community is it it yeah is it then sort of feeds back into the community that you're performing yeah. to? I mean it goes back to what the gentleman was saying over there yeah. about you know th this feeds into a process I mean I, I, I I'm increasingly aware as a writer that actually writing is all a process and it's not just about one project um, that um, you know what one project feeds into the next project and that in itself is influenced by everything that is contributed by the people who've watched it or read it or commented about it and um, you know I'm I, I'm, I'm increasingly kind of excited by the prospects of that really that um, I, I suppose it's partly being in the autumn of my career now and thinking well I've got a lot of students ex-students who are kind of picking up a baton that I maybe have passed on to them and it's rather kind of reassuring really that um, you know when, when one's own powers wane that's not the end of it. <laughs> I think the autumn's got a little few months yet, <laughs> Gary. Winter is not coming. <laughs> <laughs> we just got one, one person up there. I actually two. So I mean, is that all right with people just to hang on for five minutes? I just wanted to say I thought it was an absolutely beautiful play. Really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. And kind of going back to what you were talking about before, when people are watching it back that have contributed to that play I'm guessing that a lot with humans it's the ego so if you feel that you've been fairly portrayed and that it's been well um, received by an audience that even if it shows you as a flawed character that or that there are flaws in your character it makes you human and you're no different from anybody else do you find that people kind of feel like that if that makes sense yeah yeah yes yeah, so, um I mean, there's been some fascinating com uh, conversations with, with people who contributed to the play. Um, the man who gave me all the testimony, uh, the drummer, has uh, had never seen a play in his life before. He'd been involved in musicals, he'd been involved in club entertainment, he'd seen pantos, but he'd never seen a straight drama in the theatre before. And the whole thing has been an enormous kind of education for him I think in terms of the power of what what theatre can do um, um, and that was that was you know he's, he's absolutely delighted by it all and that was you know it's been a fascinating conversation thank you thanks Aisha and we've got one more question from James first of all while while I go and take the mic over to James one provocation this could have been the audio could have been edited as a radio documentary so why is it a play? 
Uh, oh, well, I, I would question the premise of the conversation, the, the question, really, <laughs> Peter. I mean, I, I, um, I, mean I, 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 I think had you had, you know, five actors on stage on chairs doing five separate monologues, then you might have had a point. But, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a theatricality to the way it's been put together, which is, goes back to what I was saying about it, the experience being transformational. You know, um, uh, just going back to the point I made about the drummer, the drummer saw the one of the online readings, which he he thought was extraordinary because he'd never seen anything quite like that before, and he was obviously really taken about uh, taken by how his own testimony had kind of come out in relation to the other testimonies. But even then, he had no idea what it was going to turn into when the play was fully produced and, uh, and I think he's absolutely kind of amazed at the what has happened in in between the times mm. you know um, and um, but I mean I think there are verbatim plays which can be much more like radio plays but they have a they have such a kind of intensity because of the liveness of the performance that even then um, there's something transformational about there's something, and it comes back to what Lily was saying about us all being in the space together. There's something about the idea of witnessing and the liveness of it yes. together in a space, which obviously is why it's a play. Yes. But um, some, yeah. So, James, last question from you, please. Cool. Uh, my question is a bit unconventional. It's about the current situation, the future that we're in. Um, what is your perspective on the idea of? AI algorithms as creative writing tools? <laughs> <laughs> I know, a bit deep. I'll Are you asking me? Go, <laughs> <laughs> we can ask Tony too. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's well, start with Tony. Something came to mind related to that that I'm just going to give out. I don't know, may or may not be useful, but we'll see. Um, an example from here, from this place, from Chapel FM, because we do lots of radio making, some of more and more oral history making. And one example, during the pandemic, we were doing a lot of radio broadcasting out and around with microphones, especially with teenagers. And we also had a relationship going with, this is gonna get to AI in a moment, with the British <laughs> Library that involves some of our radio programs from here going into the archives of the British Library. And we explained that to some of the teenagers and said, you know, these radio programs you're making about COVID going out on the white back, talking about, you know, food shortages and the Tesco and all these other things are gonna go in the archives of the British Library. And the kids at first were just kind of baffled by that. Like, what does that even mean, going in the archives of the British Library? What, why do we care? And we said, well, you know, imagine if, if you know, uh, 600 years ago during the Black Death, tape recorders existed and people recorded people's voices and you could go back and press and listen to what people were saying sitting around during the, the plague in 1348 and things like that. And we said, you know, 100 years from now or 500 years from now, people might be hearing your voices and these stories you're recording right now. And the reason why I think that relates to AI, and they were, they were a bit astounded by that idea, first of all, of like, what? Our great-grandkids might be hearing this someday, like 100 years from now? You know, long after, presumably, we're all going to be gone, right? Even. And the way I think that relates to AI is there's the content of what, you know, what something, the writing, but then there's the context in which it was created. And I ultimately believe it's not the words on the page or on a stage or, or heard on a radio show on the matter. It's some sense of under what circumstance were those words created, right? So you could read the exact same text, right, that of, of something, maybe a bunch of teenagers in Seacroft during the COVID pandemic. And if you know that it was created by an AI machine just through a bunch of algorithms, be like, okay, great, it was a very clever AI. But if you know that those were made by a group of teenagers in 2020 in Seacroft with microphones who'd never done that before, it means something different. So I think we all bring context to what we hear and read or see or whatever. So I think that's the key difference. It doesn't matter, the AI might write something brilliant, but there's no such thing as objective brilliance. It's all about context. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Vigorous defense of the, the human being there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've, did, we, were you putting your hand, no, okay, well I think we should finish there because we did say we'd finish at 5.30, we've gone slightly after. So thank you so much to Tony, Gary and Mary for being here and thanks Gary for the play, which 
obviously moved, moved us very much. And uh, thank you to the audience for coming along. Thank you, a technical team. Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Come back the way you are.